Live Each Day for the Day. Words by our guest, Heidi Knobloch, on today's episode of the Get Over It podcast as we talk to her about her journey from a PhD in history to owning an oyster bar. I know, right? Something that you might not ever think goes together, but that, my friends, is life in the truest way. Things happen, things pop up, things just appear, but if we are not living in the present moment, we might miss those opportunities and we might miss those chances. The great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around every once in a while, you could miss it. Well said, Ferris, my friend, but life ain't that easy. It ain't that easy. Being present ain't that easy. In fact, it's so difficult. I have the words be present tattooed on my forearm as a reminder every day to live in the day. So what do you say? Enough talk. Let's get over it. All right. So our guest today is, I guess what you would say, a real mover and shaker, a true entrepreneur, doctor. And I'm calling her doctor because as one person who's gone through the rigors of getting that degree, I give everyone the respect it commands when I see it next to their name. So Dr. Heidi Knobloch. Heidi has been involved in uh, numerous business ventures, including the owner of the Plum Oyster Bar in Troy, New York. Shout out. Um, she's been recognized for her business prowess. We're going to talk to her a little bit about that today. Named in Albany's Business Review 40 Under 40 in 2019. Uh, earned Ignite U Accelerator Best Pitch in 2019 and was given the WYCA's Resourceful Women Award in 2018. She earned a PhD in history, which I'm going to talk to her about in a second. Uh, master's degrees in both history of science and medicine on uh, public humanities from Yale University, uh, bachelor's degree in history and public health from the University of Rochester. Um, Heidi, welcome to the Get Over It podcast. Thanks so much. All right. So we always, I always want to start with giving the audience and myself too. This is the first time we're actually meeting and speaking. So introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, um, you know, what you enjoy doing. Just give us a little bit about yourself before we start to get into uh, more of the, of the business stuff. Yeah, so I have a super wild background. I will tell you that someone uh, dubbed me a uh, nomad New Yorker, which I kind of like. I like I that. Albany and then uh, Cooperstown and then Syracuse and then um, up to Boston Lake and then in Troy and then in Rochester and then New York City. So kind of seen it all except Buffalo. And um, so I'm a nomad New Yorker and uh, I also had kind of a business itchings from the early start of my life. I was, you know, the person selling pixie sticks on the back of the bus. I would like go to the dollar store, buy a hundred for a uh, dollar and then mm -hmm. sell meat for 10 cents a piece. Or... That's real gangster of you, pixie sticks. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, went to the Round Lake uh, Antique Festival selling water to people and, you know, doing just that kind of stuff um, when I was a kid. And um, then that kind of translated into adulthood. So I went into academia actually because I think academia is a very entrepreneurial place. It makes sense. Like you're creating something, you're doing something, you're um, creating new knowledge and um, oftentimes seeking a lot of grant applications or moving and shaking. Oftentimes. Yes. <laughs> all, all, all of all the, the time. time. That's right. All of the time. Uh, that's funny. And I really, I would not change, change my time in academia for anything. So, you know, so it's interesting you said that because I get a lot of people who say to me, um, 
how does someone who has an academic background and went to school was it in, to, to do neuroscience and do basic research end up in business and in like, you know, in, in the world of marketing? And I don't see it as such a far stretch, to be honest with you, because, you know, like you said, in academics and science and research, you're creating. I mean, your job is to create. Your job is to think. Your job is to challenge and create. And that is applicable all across spectrums, but definitely in business when you're trying to come up with something new. Um, and so again, I, I, I find that I find that the knowledge I've gained too has really, really helped me give me a little bit of an edge. Um, tell me a little bit about grad school. Uh, first, the first thing is I want to understand your decision as to why you entered into that journey because it is a journey. It is a haul. Yeah. Um, you know, people always say like, I've heard these jokes, you know, um, from MDs and PhDs, the battles that they have is like, you don't get it. If you, people that don't get into med school, go get a PhD because they can still get called doctor. And I always say like, don't ever do that. Do never go into a program like that unless you really, really want it. So first question is talk to me about, about the decision to, to enter grad school, to learn more. And then yeah. history, what was it about history that, that you really found to be, to drive you? Yeah, sure. So when I was in my undergrad, I majored in history and public health. And I was super interested in public health and, you know, kind of how to change social determinants of health. So I thought when I was studying public health at the University of Rochester that that stuff would be uh, changing housing conditions for people. These like large, um, yep. large scale structural change. And I actually dropped out of the University of Rochester my junior year and went to um, CUNY Hunter. Okay. They had a community health education program. And so I went there and I was like, okay, like we're going to, we're going to fix these social determinants of mm -hmm. health. Like let's do this. And a lot of it was about brochure making and changing individual behavior traits. So I was, I was bummed out about that. And I thought like what shifted, you know, from 19th century, you know, public health stuff to, you know, 20th century all of a sudden we're doing individual behavior change. Like what is that change about? And um, was always interested in history. Um, just, you know, I like history. And so I thought like, you know, I, I got to figure this out. Like when did this change happen? And through that, um, you know, life happens in such random ways. Right. Yeah, it but does. I was, I was taking a class called French women and I was writing a paper um, on a medical uh, history issue uh, that related to French women. And my uh, professor said, and this is still when I was at CUNY, said, hey, you should go to the um, American Academy for, um, you should go to AAHM, which is the American Medical Association. Yeah. Um, sorry, not the American Medical Association, but AAHM. So the American history of medical med, whatever. Wow, that's embarrassing that I've forgotten that. No, it's all good. It's like, oh, there's too many, there's too yeah, many of those in our society right. today. It's like you lose, right. it's all good. And so um, <laughs> I went to this conference just because I was interested. And uh, people don't go to conferences like that just because they're interested. They go there because it's like part of their professional development. Yep. And I happened to meet the people who had become my advisor in Yale, at Yale and um, I saw like, oh, history could be a career. Like I could actually do this type of research and like figure out these large complex problems for a career. So um, I thought about that for a little bit and then um, decided that I was gonna buy a coffee shop in New York City instead. And uh, that was in 2007. 
and or early 2008. So this is pre-grad school. That's right. All pre-grad school. So 2007, 2008, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this entrepreneurial thing. I'm buying this coffee shop. We're going to do it. Kind of had this verbal deal with the, uh, the owner of the coffee shop. And, um, so now wait, where is this? Because into the, so now 2007, 2008, I'm living on the upper East side. So where, right. where is this coffee shop? I'm curious. So it's called 17 bleaker. So it's on okay. yep. Street, kind of between mm-hmm. Bowery and, you know, yep. like, like right over by the Bowery. That's a fun, that's a fun area. Yep. Absolutely. And, um, you know, almost did it. But what happened was the owner um, had a lot of outstanding debts that he wanted us to take on. Mm. And um, I had to make this game time decision kind of at the end of this road and decided not to do it. And then the entire financial system collapsed. So that was kind of a lucky break for me. And so my backup plan was to go to Yale for graduate school. So then you enter Yale as a master's student first. Did you did you or was or, or was the master's degree on the way? Because sometimes, like if in my case, like I received a master's on my way, but yeah. I entered in as a doctoral student. Is that what is that what happened for you? That's exactly what okay. happened for me. So right. I um I only applied to PhD programs that would pay you. Same. So um I which I, by the way, pay is loosely uh it's loosely defined in this in this for grad students. I think it was yeah. like yeah, I think my stipend back in the day was like twenty three thousand bucks in yeah, Albany or something. I yeah. I think mine was like twenty eight, thirty, something yeah. like that. You can live there, but 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 yeah. it's but it's no debt, right? That's the difference, right? right? We're not paying for the for the tuition. Sorry, right. go ahead. No, you're fine. I um yeah, so I applied to a bunch of programs, got into a bunch of them and made the decision to go to Yale. Um primarily just because it had a couple of researchers there that I really respected. And um, I thought like that these are the people who I'm going to work with and I still respect them so much and um, really value them. But my advisor, John Harley Warner was at Yale. And so I decided to go there and have him kind of mentor me through the program. But in year two or three, um, probably two, I realized that I didn't want a tenure track position. That's not really, uh, that wasn't for me, right? That kind of climbing the ladder and- um, You you realized that early in your your way through. Yeah, I did. So that's what led me to get that public humanities um, degree. So I actually had to- Oh, I see. That was an American studies program. So um, it didn't cross over with history. So I actually had to apply to the American studies program to look be able to do my master's in that on the way instead of my master's in history. And so through that public humanities angle, got really interested in digital humanities. So all the rage back in, you know, early 2010s. Mm -hmm. um, It's really, I think, a place that a lot of entrepreneurs who are in the humanities end up because they're trying to solve these really complex problems. So I'll give you like an example of a complex problem that I was trying to solve. So my dissertation is on clinical photography in the early uh, 19th and 20th century and how it relates to conceptions of patient privacy. And so something that I wanted to figure out was when do the black bars over the eyes like start to come into play? Hmm. So I wrote a Python script that scraped down the New York Medical Journal from 1860 to 1922, and then used another script that actually someone else had written um, to pull out all of the images from that 
those articles and it pulled out like 3,500 images and then I coded all of them um, to see like when black bars started appearing over people's eyes. And to be honest, it's, uh, it's much later than you'd think. <laughs> so, um, and I could talk about that forever, but so that kind of is what led me into digital humanities. And at the time I was also working for a Ford Foundation project that was done at the CUNY um, Graduate Center, the CUNY Graduate Center. And in that project, it was called Just Publics at 365. And I led a bunch of what were called media camps for academics because the goal of the program was to connect academics, activists, and the media, and to really teach academics how to expand their audience because a lot of people write these, like when I was given my book deal, I said, how many, how many copies of this are you going to run in the first round? The answer was 500. And I said, wow, <laughs> that is a lot of work for um, 500, you know, for yeah. 500 people to potentially get for this sure. book. Yeah, right. You know, and um, so it's I like, said, wow. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> And so, and it wasn't like a bad press. It was, you know, not right. at all bad press. It was like a very reputable, it was the, you know, University of Pittsburgh press. I was debating between that and uh, Johns Hopkins, like it was, or I'm sorry, University of Chicago. And so between those two, it was both like 500 <laughs> run, you know, and um, that for me really struck home of the idea that I want to make an impact. Right. Like it's too small scale. Yeah. yeah, like I, I wanted to make an impact. And although it's not like, you know, I just wanted to influence um, people beyond this like 250 uh, person group of people who know everything about history of medicine. And although I actually miss those people greatly, like I really, I really miss being able to like jam about, uh, you know, Lorraine Daston and Peter Gallison's book on objectivity. Like I'm, I miss that piece. I miss like chatting historiography and like how, when a new book comes out, it challenges this other thing. Yep. Like my sister got this book from my mom for Christmas because she was really interested in um, the civil war. And it's by this person that like, I don't particularly like, and I was like, why didn't you ask me before you bought this book? Like, this is, this like, is, this where, is what I do, man. This yeah. is, like, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, it's funny. this is where they get, this is, they get this huge narrative wrong. You know what right. I mean? Let's yeah. go to page like 230. Right. I'll show right. you, you know? Yep. And so, but talking in that insular group of people, it just wasn't, um, it didn't fulfill whatever that, itch and need was inside of me. To, you don't feel like you're get like you're you're getting to where you want to yeah. get to, right? Like yeah. that's how I felt. I mean, I remember the, the the beauty of academics is, or at least the spirit of academics. I think it has changed a bit because it's gotten a lot more um, infiltrated by you know just whatever money is going to give you the your uh, you know the money for your work. You tend to go that way. It's not just pure on what your thought is. Um, the, the, the idea of sitting in a room with, with smart people, being able to have a really awesome discussion where people challenge you or you, you expect the challenge and you can then have like good, you know, good real debate and incremental sort of movement is really, it's really fun. And I, I agree with you. I miss it. But there's a certain personality that is okay with that sort of dialogue forever. 
And for me, it never was that, you know, like it, it couldn't be because, and th- that's why I always did other things because I needed something else. It wasn't, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like you said, I loved it, but it didn't do it for me to the point where I can do this forever. Right. So, um, and I, and I realized that, um, later than you, I mean, I, I went through grad school, went into research and then started getting into content production by happenstance because I had a business to, to grow and I had to learn how to do that. Um, mm-hmm. and then I fell in love with that because, you know, that was real tangible. You start something, you grow it. And it's really as much as you hustle, whereas science, I can hustle all day long, but a lot of factors are going to keep me back. So, so there's always that. So, so tell us now, so you, you, you go, you, you graduate, you have that amazing feeling, you get the degree. Where are you going now? What's your option? Where are you at in life and where do you go? So at the end of my degree, I was like, man, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And at the last minute, which is like, you know, March when you're applying for jobs, that's yep. like late. That's like super late. I was like, well, I should apply for a job. I probably won't get it. So it's like, you know, fine. I can kind of crash this and do whatever else I want to do next. And um, I applied for a job at Bard College. Okay. Um, the the digital digital projects coordinator and also um, professor in the not not full professor right but, you know on the track yep yeah for um, historical studies which is what okay. uh, Bard calls it and uh, I got in I got it so I was like both thrilled and also like okay what am I what am I gonna do with this am I gonna stay at Bard forever and um, you know, work in this small liberal arts college. And I think I could have seen myself doing that. But again, the problem just came back to like, I felt like I was in um, meetings where it was these circular conversations and we're talking about like how to allocate $500 for like a, a lunch program for like um, when there's a speaker series, like how to do lunch for that speaker series. And um I really, really liked all my colleagues at Bard. I thought that they were great. But again, it just kind of was like, this just doesn't feel right. You know, this just doesn't, this just doesn't scratch the itch that I've been trying to scratch. And so um, I made a a really hard, I was, I wasn't really ready to do this, but um, I didn't feel like I, because I had senior advisors or senior advisees and stuff. So I felt like I needed to let Bard know before uh, school started that I wasn't going to be teaching these classes and I I wasn't going to have these senior advisees. So I don't know if you felt this when you were getting out of academia, but it's like terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's because it's, um, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's a bit of like a, it's a insular community. And if you don't follow that kind of tenure track path, if you don't follow the path of like that they've set for you, you feel like a little lost. Like, we, we used to call it, you're either, going to, you're either going into academics or the dark side. That's what we used to call it amongst my yeah. friends. Like the dark side was like pharma and industry. And, um, you know, and then academics was like pure. It was more of yeah. like this pure yeah. place. Whereas, 
you were going over the dark side. You'll make more money, right? You're less creative and you're not going to be able to create your own ideas you know, unless you get to that really high level, but you'll do better and you'll probably have a little bit more of a comfortable life. But we used to write, it's a dark side because it's, a, it's more of an unknown. When you grow yeah. up in academics, it's like a family. Like those pedigrees are real. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you become, in, in, you have like grandparents and yes. siblings and yes. academics and like you think exactly. like them, you think like them. It's funny. Like when you sit when I have like big Italian family dinner, I'm like my cousins and my uncles and aunts a lot, but we're very different, but yeah. we're all come from the same lineage. So we share yeah. isms, right? Same yeah. thing in academics. And then all of a sudden you're out of that family, right? Yeah. So you're like, whoa, yeah. I totally get it. Yeah. It's very, yeah. it's a very weird thing. And a lot, a lot of academics cannot make the switch. Right. They can't. It's no. too difficult for them and they belong there. Oh, luckily I wasn't that person. Luckily I was able to come out, you know? Yeah. But it, it that feeling is very real. Like it's a loss. Right. Yep. You know? Um, then you become an independent scholar in my case. So an independent Which scholar. is a fancy way to say a smart person on their own now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, you've got no affiliation, you've right. got no umbrella, nothing. Right. So making that jump for me was like, it was, it was both, whenever I know that something is right, I, I feel very propelled to do it, right? So like right. I knew that making plum oyster bar was right. I knew that that was right. So I felt a compulsion almost to make that thing, but at the same time knew I couldn't keep this other security community that I had made for myself. This so was your, there. this was your get over it moment. You were, you yeah. were like, you were like, I need to, I need to get over it. I, I, I'm not fulfilled yeah. and I need to do it. The difference is you did it or you at least attempted to do it and then did it. Whereas mm -hmm. I feel like, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is um, I want you to continue like how you took the jump because a lot of people can't do that. You know, they're, they're just restricted by this idea. They think about it. Oh, I really am passionate about making sandwiches. Like I want to make sandwiches, dude. Like that's all I want to do. By the way, I love making sandwiches. I, that's, that's a real thing. I want to make sandwiches. Like that's my passion, but I have a job and like it's kind of safe and it gives me the life i have and if i go to make sandwiches yes i'll be doing what i love yeah. but there's a lot more unknown and i might not have any money and people struggle with that branch and they never get over it because they're afraid of the re i mean it's a real fear of that what if it doesn't work out so so i guess you're deciding that and you know it's right but and you decide that you're going to do it so yep. How did you, how did you square that? What, 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 what just, was it just like, I'm done, I'm doing it and I'll deal with it? No, it was more um, that I, I knew I wouldn't fail because I would refuse to let myself fail. So um, on our like second or third week open at Plum Oyster Bar, uh, we had a person who I had hired as a kitchen manager and that person decided to kind of sabotage our first turn it out and uh, not come to work. Oof. I know. Jeez. So brutal. in, it was brutal. And like in that moment, I, you know, I didn't even think like, man, that guy's a jerk. It didn't even register to me. It was okay. How do I do that? You just go into like survive mode. Like That's I got to make this work. Yeah. Yep. So it's like, you know, I went to restaurant depot. I got a bunch of stuff. Like I got everything that I was able to make and I cooked in the kitchen for three weeks. And so my wife made me, I should have worn it so I could show you. Um, my wife made me this 
necklace because I always said after that moment, I can point to the day that I became invincible. And it's January 27th, uh, That's 2017. Cool. That's, That's the day cool. I became invincible. And so like forever, I kind of have that, right? And so I think that people who are scared to make that jump, you're absolutely right. All the time, you're going to have to make it work, make it work, make it work. Like at the bank, you know, I work with a lot of clients who are like, we got to make it work. We got to do this. We got to make it work. And uh, that's true. And that's going to be that hustle all the time because there's always something you're going to have to make work until your business is stable, which is like five, 10 years. It's a long time. Mm -hmm. And so making it work is like feeling that it's once you get to a point where something happens that you overcame an impossible task, that feeling of invincibility doesn't, it it doesn't wane away. Like there's nothing that I can't do. Right. Like I did it. I'm going to keep doing it. Right. It's that mindset that it's never good. That's a very, it's a very academic uh, thing to learn in academics because in academics, 90 some odd percent of the time, things are never going to not working your way. Your, your thing is getting rejected. Your paper's not getting in, your grant's not getting funded. So it sort of gets you tough too. There's that element of like, you just have to keep keep going. But I gotta, I gotta know, how do you, how do you come out of this program in, in, in history and academics and open up an oyster bar? Like, where's that? What, first of all, are you like, are you all about that oyster life? Have you always been, or were you, was it a complete business angle? Did you see an angle for oysters? Was it both? Like what, tell me about that. Cause that's a niche, right? That's real specific. I tell uh, different versions of the answer like <laughs> the time, but um, I'm going to tell you straight up. It was totally a business decision. So okay. like, I, um, and so many people said to me, don't call it plum oyster bar, call it plum bar. Do not call it plum oyster bar. And I was like, nah, man, like nah, the, man. Path, the path is oysters. And so, um, you know, I had seen like a lot of oyster bars in New York city, like, I've been at a lot of them. I'd gone with my wife to a bunch of them. And um, I did like a little Google uh, keyword search. And like a lot of people were looking for oysters in the capital region. Like if you do it, like just kind of zone in on like what people are looking for. Like a lot of people were doing searches for oysters. And so I thought like, oh, this is interesting. And then so uh, Lucas Confectionery is right across the street from us. So I went to Lucas Confectionery every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Tuesday was their oyster night, and they were packed. And every mm-hmm. other night they weren't as packed. So, I was so you're like, just me, you're okay. sitting there like, okay, check search volume, yeah. check demand, exactly. check. Right, that's exactly yep. right. Yep. Like there's you know there's some factors there, and um, you know I just saw that there was going to be appeal for it, and so. Um, I got a lot of like flack for putting oyster in the name, like tons of people. You wouldn't believe like everyone has got an opinion, you know, everyone's got opinions. Yep. And, um, I said, until you open the oyster bar and they all want to come and try the oysters. Right. Exactly. No, what I said to them is I said, (laughs) I feel like they got over it with Jack's oyster house. I think they'll get over it with me. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So then, so, so it was, but you do like oysters, I would imagine. You know, I it's not that I don't like oysters. They're oysters. You can't eat them like all the time, right? Right. Right. Well, you can. You can eat them all the time. And like, that, that, that's not what I mean. I mean, it's not a primary thing that you're having at a meal, right. but, but you could have it with meals, right? It's not yeah. like that. Right. Exactly. Sure. Yep. 
Um, I mean, I've tasted every oyster variety that's come in, but like, I don't think I've had an oyster, not just because we haven't been closed, but like, I don't, I don't think I've had an oyster in a year, you know, like, um, it was, and that's not because I don't like them. No, that, that, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be all about what you right. like, just love. Right. Exactly. Right. What people who know me closely will tell you is that I'm also like a super paranoid person. And so when we first started Plum Oyster Bar, we would get our oyster delivery at like eight or nine in the morning and I would eat an, every oyster <laughs> just to make sure that they were all like right. fresh and yep. good and like everything was good. It was so funny though, because I would get anxious towards like when we were going to be open. I was like, oh man, like I'm feeling like a little like flip in my stomach. Oh man, you're like, no, maybe, what, what's like, going to no, happen? Like maybe like we shouldn't serve this one. And everyone was like, yo, you got to chill out with that. Like you're just like nervous, you know? And so um, I had a lot of oysters at like nine or 10 in the morning too. So you know, that's, uh, that's that'll all. be enough that's to make you slow self. down on the oysters. Yeah, so, that's right. so, so you open, so you open this, you, you dive in, you, you go for it and you know, you, you clearly have this, um, what I want and I want to looking at the time and I want to make sure I get to some things, but you clearly have this sort of, um, passion, like, like there's some sort of fire in you that's going to make you invincible. Like you're saying, that's going to make you plow through and go through and do something, even though people are like, what, what are you doing? What are you crazy? Which I find that like when a lot of people say that it sometimes reinforces the idea that I need to do something right. Because if they think it's that crazy, then it's either that crazy or it's that interesting, you know? And so like, right. So there's always that too, but where does that come from? Like, this is one of the great things that for neuroscience that I find fascinating is that there are these people that are inherently driven and I hate the word driven because it implies that other people are not like, and some yep. people are, that's not what I mean. I mean that there are, there is clear passion in certain people and this, uh, this drive. And if you're going to get over it, take something to the next level, you have to have that. So do you, were you, oh, you, you always have that? Did you, how did you foster it? And talk to me about how, how failing and maybe being in an environment of academics where there's a lot of failure fueled it for you and kept it going? Because I think that's really important for people to succeed. They got to be able to fail along the way. Absolutely. And I've failed so many times. I fail all the time. You know, I think I fail on like a weekly basis. You know, like yeah, yeah, you should. I mean, that means because you know. if you're not, you're not trying anything, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and so I think that that failure rate, I'll tell you a little story of like when I was a kid. So, you know, those like little uh, toys that are a circle where you put like little tiny shapes into them and like yep. the box and yep, the so when I was a kid, I was like so wanting to do this thing. And um, my, when I couldn't do it, I would flip myself back like in frustration, like, oh my gosh, I like don't have the motor skills to do this yet. I'm like three years old, you know, whatever, two years old. And so, and my mom would always have to put a cushion behind me because she, she thought like all kids did that. But when my sister was born and she did the same thing, she was like, oh yeah, like not all kids like get like that, you know? And so I think that like, I have this combination of being driven, but also being really frustrated and what, and frustrated in a way that, um, that I've had to like channel into fixing problems to like make the path easier. So the big things for me are like one day at a time. It's one day at a time, right? You can have these like long, long-term goals, but it's like, what can you do in this day? So like every day I wake up, like I've got a little prayer, you know, I wake yeah. up, I have a little prayer and um, I just 
say like, okay, like I have today, like what can I do today to move it one step forward? Because for me, if I take on the whole thing, I just get too frustrated and I throw my head back. So it's all about taking those little tiny chunks. So, but what you're saying, and I totally agree, is that taking those little tiny chunks, at some point, there's a moment where you have to get over it. Yeah. There's a moment where you have to say like, no, I'm going to do this, right? There's a moment that you say like, I've de-risked this. As right. And it's okay to take the steps yeah. first. No one's suggesting you yeah. have to take the jump right that's away. Right. That would be, that would be crazy. And that would probably be ill-advised. Yes, exactly. Right. And so that's what I would say to people is that like, do a little bit every day. If you do a little bit every day, what that does is it gets you to the point where you can get over it. If you just are trying to tackle the whole thing all at once in one day, it's just going to frustrate you and you're going to throw your head back. It, it's, it's, very, it's a very mindful technique, right? It's all about like mindfulness. One of my biggest problems in life is my ability to hold my presence in, in the day, yeah. in the moment. And I am actually tattooed be present on my arm, on my left arm, which is my cell phone arm. So like every time I have it out or I'm doing something, I can remind myself. And then I have be patient on my reach arm, which is my right arm to remind me to just, just like slow down, like yeah. just chill back. And this is where you have to be right now. And because I'm always going, 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 which is great, but it can, it could be disastrous. And like you said, it creates the anxiety that's unnecessary, right? Because you can't control any of that stuff. Like, and it's so, it sounds cliche, really it does, but it's so true. The only thing you actually can control is what you're doing in that moment and everything else falls into place. Um, so that mindful approach is really important. It very, you have to be very disciplined because almost impossible to maintain presence, right? Um, but I agree. It's like, a, it's a constant, um, it has to be a constant reminder, especially during this crazy time. So like, this is the, what I want to talk about in the last little bit where we're, where we're talking is like, so when we're recording this, it's 20, it's early 2021. So for those people that might catch this podcast years after it comes out, this is 2021, early 2021. We're just, we're still in this historic pandemic that we've been going through now for over a year. It's changed so many lives fundamentally how we approach our life. Uh, our business, right? So what I want to ask you is two things. First off, as a, actually as a student of history, history of science and medicine, et cetera, yeah. I'm more curious, where does this fit in for you? Like, it's your great yeah. person to ask in terms of the gravity, right? Yeah. How serious of the time we're in right now. And how do you think it affects humans personally going forward? Do you yeah. see this as like a shift in human, like yeah. evolutionarily, as we look back, this could cause humans to shift, I believe. Yeah. I would say a couple things about that. So if you look at a lot of people point to like the 1918 flu uh, pandemic as like a parallel, there are some, some issues with doing that, but like, let's just take like the U S like, um, you know, GDP or whatever. Um, so in the pandemic started in 1918, obviously continued through 1919 and 1920. Um, and so you see a decrease until 1921 when it spikes. So I will say that I think this year is going to be like a pretty hard year. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see that decline for sure. Um, but I think, you know, when you think of the 1920s, what do you think of? You think of the roaring 20s, right? right. So um, the roaring 20s are happening. Prohibition is during the roaring 20s, yep. right? So like there's a lot going on in the yep. United States, but like the economy is booming. 
Yeah. So um, I definitely think that we're going to have a rough 2021. Um, I think it's not going to get back to normal until, you know, next year. But I try and think like very long term. I think very long term in my investments. I think very long term in relationships. I think very long term just generally. And I think the more you can think about that's very scientific of you, by the way, it's very academic of you to root yes. out because there's less stand, there's less error and variance in the longer periods yeah. of time, right? That's right. Correct. So if you, but if you think about someone in 1925, they're they're not thinking about the flu, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Right. Like yeah. they're not. They got they got our memories are super short. Yep. And um, I think that there will be some changes from this for sure. Um, I think that there will be some positive changes. I think that there's going to be some negative changes. Um, but I'll give you an example in my business. Like, yeah, that's the second part. That's what I want to ask you. Yeah, so like good. personal and then the second part is business because you're, the business landscape has to have, like someone who markets for, for, for a living, like it's definitely changed, right? I've seen that digital platforms, all these things have really yeah. changed. You're, you're in the restaurant game. So you, you know this more than anyone. Yeah. So talk to us about that, like how it affects business now and then long game. Do you think we remain on this pivot that we're seeing? Yeah. So like for me, I'm always trying to figure out like, how can we use this time to do better in the future? So like one small thing is that we're going to print a QR code on everyone's receipt and they're going to pay with their phone. So like, there's not going to be this running back and forth with credit cards or anything like that. Like people will pay on their phone at the table. And so that's hugely different than somebody um, signing, you know, getting their credit card, giving it to someone yep. else, someone yep. running at the point of sale system and then bringing it back for them to sign and like all of that stuff. Right. So I think people, I think like 2020 was like a great year for the QR code. You know it really I mean? was. Yeah, you're so true. <laughs> great year for the QR code. So I feel like people are really um, apt to use that now. And so just, just thinking about small things like that, small changes like that. Um, I People think will be more likely to do things now, possibly that they weren't yeah. because they become used to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, you know, when I think about the restaurant, the, the huge bummer for me is like, I've had to lay off pretty much the whole staff mm -hmm. besides like someone who a couple of hours a week is doing the cocktail club. And so like, that's a big bummer because I was that those people's livelihood. And so, um, and when we closed, it was, I, I could no longer support right. that. Right. right. And so right. That, Which every business owner knows, like you want your business to be successful, obviously, and the goal is to make money. But when you employ people, that's the kind of thing that just like you think about at night, you know, like it, I mean, you should at least, I mean, most small businesses, at least bigger businesses are a little different story, but I've done a small business, especially like local small businesses and communities. You think it hurts, you know, yeah. that's why I can imagine people's pain. So, yeah. so, 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 I mean, it was, it clearly is, is a difficult uh, thing to go through. There are some positives that come out of difficulties. Um, are you, you, so what is your, at the restaurant, what is, what is it like now there? Have you reduced down? Are you doing something different? Yeah. So what, what we're doing is this cocktail club. So people buy um, uh, a cocktail club that's for four weeks. They get four drinks a week. Um, so for a total of 16 cocktails, they can have it delivered or they can pick it up. And, um, you know, what that allows us to do is that That's they cool. buy it beforehand. Yeah, they buy it before the month starts. We know exactly how many we're doing for the month. Um, last time we had 
each time we have about 50 people that sign up. So we can batch all the cocktails, we give them with a snack, and um, they're kind of on their merry way. And it allows us to keep our name out there, our brand out there, and also to employ a couple of people. But we really shut down the whole restaurant. There's no food coming out of it. The cocktail club's the only thing coming out of it. And so why I did that is I felt like, oh, let's save energy for when it can be busy in April. Because right. you don't want to wear people out because the last thing you want to do to a restaurant worker is put them in a kitchen where they're not doing anything because right. that's defeating. That feels defeating and deflating, you know, that's yep. like not a good place to be. Yeah. And so for morale's sake, I just said, you know, let's cut this. And um, I, I think that the majority of employees will come back. Um, you know, there was one person who took it really hard. And so I don't think they'll be coming back. But um, I think that the majority of employees are going to come back and hopefully we'll just be up and running in April. And you can look back on this as just that something that was, you know, in the past and um, in the science word, it's, uh, t- you know, plus or minus, it was more than two standard deviations from the mean. So you can get rid yeah. of it from your data set and keep moving yep. and keep, keep moving forward. You know, I, I'm one of the things I hope that comes out of this time that has been obviously terrible, wreaking havoc on people's health and in so many ways, physical and mental health is that I hope when this is over, cause still, we're still in and there's still so many, too many people dying every day. But when we're oh, when it's, when we're, we start to come out of that, we can look back and say, what, what, what was it that yeah. we will see the vulnerability that is our country and their health? Because I do think that we have a problem both in physical and mental health and mm-hmm. we are left vulnerable. And when a vulnerable population is susceptible for viral spread, that's what they do. They find cracks and they wreak havoc there. And what, I'm ho- what I hope is that um, I spend a lot of time on mental health. I have a, another podcast where I focus solely on, on that. Like what I've seen in mental health is that people have embraced it more because mm-hmm you know, it's been made a little bit more available to them. There, there's just been explosion of digital mental health outlets and, you know, insurance companies have waived co-pays and you don't have to go in and see a psychologist or a psychiatrist and lay on the couch and be, you know, you don't have yeah. to do that. You can just call somebody and talk it out. And, yeah. and, and, you know, people are, are trying to get a little more healthy because they don't want to get sick. So I, I'm doing this because I'm just highlighting the fact that in the most extreme downtimes, there always is things that come out that are bad, that make it better in the time where it was so bad. And I think that um, it's sort of meta- a metaphor for life that if you're feeling stuck and you're feeling like you, you know what you want to do and you want to get over it, you just have to tell yourself that it's okay. Do it, you know, put your yeah. mind to it. And like you said, I think you said your advice, my, my last question was going to be to you. If you have a room full of people from all over the world and they're all in the same place and they're feeling stuck and they really want to get over it. What are you telling them? I think what you said was you're telling them just live in this moment every day. That's what you would yes. say to them. That's exactly right. So, you know, if, if people can take it one step at a time. So like for me, you know, if I'm ever thinking about the future, um, what I try to do is write very, very detailed um, to-dos. And we're talking like detailed. We're talking like make Excel spreadsheet with these four headings. Fill in column A. Fill in column B. And if you break it down like that, you feel like you're moving. You feel like you're getting somewhere. So I'm not to say that I've totally... uh, 
No, no, no. Great of future right. thinking, but you know, I've got a couple of things that like I really want to learn about right now, like always learning, and so got a few things that I really want to learn about. So I just kind of like made a schedule. Like I, I did the same thing. You'll laugh about this. I did the same thing with my dissertation. So for my <laughs> dissertation, I looked up how many words is in um, like our top journal in our field was the bulletin of the history of medicine. How many words is in the average chapter? And it's, they cut it off at 10,000 words. So I said, okay, I'm going to write five chapters. They're each going to be 10,000 words. And then I just said, this is, <laughs> I want to finish in six months. This is how many words I need mm. to write a day. And then I'm going to give myself wow. weeks to edit it. And so when I, when I stuck to that, I was like, okay, I can get up off of this chair if I write these like thousand words or whatever. That is what allowed me to do it. I was just like, got to write these thousand words. They don't have to be good. But I, I just to. gotta write them. I just yeah. yeah. I mean that, especially with the dissertation, it's all about progress because you can get stuck. Then yeah. you get stuck. But that, but again, it's just like life. You get stuck. Like you know, winter's here in upstate New York. It's cold. You get more down. You get more stuck. And it's the time where like you could either go into like a little bit of a hole and just live there, or you can find that thing that maybe you've been putting off and then say, well, look, I got nothing else to do. So I'm going to put my effort and my time into this so that, you know, like I can really do it. It's really just a mind game and it's getting your mind right. Um, and I'm glad that you um, took this time today to come on the show and talk to us a little bit about your experience. You know, like with these shows, you, it's, it's never, for me, I, I, I find them fun and I get to know people and I just want to keep talking to them about it. But now I know that, um, you know, nowadays listeners have limited time to actually listen to things. So try to do it in concise bits. But um, again, I really want, I really want to thank you for coming on, telling me a little, like a little about your story, how you got over it and how you continue to get over it because your challenges are not over. Um, right. I'm sure you would agree with that. You're going to continue to face them, but you have to hold that philosophy and just continue to push to the next level. So um, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. And it's really been nice talking to you. Absolutely. You too. Thanks so much. All right. So she is Heidi Knobloch. I am Chris Fasano. And this is the Over It podcast where people come together to discuss the various ways to stop just getting through it and start getting over it. We'll see you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.